0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Merimiana people of the Perimang Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Vintage is a,
1: it's kind of a fun time. Everybody just has to work hard, play hard. (laughs) It's sort of the celebration of getting something in that tastes beautiful.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. The name of Henschke is entrenched within our Australian cultural identity. The family-run winery is now in its sixth generation of custodians. The distinction of quality is in no doubt largely due to the care, attention and prestigious vision of Prue Henschke. Prue is a viticulturalist, botanist, environmentalist and guardian of the earth. And I'm beyond honoured to have her join me today. Hi, Pru. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. How has your morning been? Um, well, I guess after a
1: hectic family get together yesterday, because uh, Justine's new baby boy, George, is now on the scene. So we had a few more of the family come together and, and uh, yeah, just celebrate George's Arrival mm, <laughs> in the ex- family.
0: How exciting! Yeah. A little freshy baby, and God, he is so gorgeous. I had a quick chat to Justine, and how is she doing? Oh, very well. Very well. For a little
1: girl who didn't play with dolls, I think she's doing.
0: <laughs> very well as a mum. <laughs> oh gosh, it just brings back so many memories and I just think she's she looks like she's doing amazing. I I reminded her to get some rest and to also look after herself. I hope that she is, you know, recovering well. Yes, yes. She's t-
1: definitely looking after herself and she looks brilliant. <laughs> that, you know, that
0: mother glow. <laughs> oh, definitely. And I mean, what an exciting time for you to have a new baby in the family. I mean, just such a special moment. I'm glad you celebrated. <laughs> yes, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> now, Prue, we have to go back a little bit. Take us back to where your love of land and kind of life began in terms of, you know, you studied zoology and botany at, um, at Adelaide Uni. Is that where, you know, it all kind of started for you? Well, it actually started because we lived next to a creek as, a kid, as kids.
1: And um, my sister and I used to play down the creek a lot. And then one day... Uh, the local council uh, decided to concrete it in and we were devastated. So we sent our dad along to the council to, to complain <laughs> and I um, guess I guess he thought it was a pretty crazy idea too and he got told he was old-fashioned and that um, the creek needed to be cemented in because it was a, a, a flood risk. So Yeah, after that, I was determined that uh, these grown-ups were ridiculous people and (laughs) and that something needed to be protected and looked after and not cemented in. So, yeah, and now they're looking at it the other way. They're saying, oh. It's an eyesore it's, um, and it's obviously um, a, a trap for speeding waters and actually three kids lost their lives shortly afterwards. So it was really the wrong thing to do. And uh, ever since then I've been particularly, I guess, in, in concerned, involved in looking at nature because uh, it was a source of all our, our science um Uh, items you
0: know we used to go down there and get planaria for the science lesson and all that sort of thing (laughs) oh yeah it's like a wonderland when you're a kid I remember having to you know get those specimen jars and have a look at what all the life that was in these little what looked like little festering pools but I mean I love that you're an activist even then and rightly so so when did you decide you know perhaps botany and, and zoology was something that really, you know, you could see yourself doing. And, and how did you go about applying at uni?
1: Um, well, I, I um, went for a science degree because I thought that that's really where I'm, I'm best, my best abilities are. And I thought, well, there's an opportunity to study botany. And in those days, it was really part of an ag degree or, um, yeah, for – Um, sort of the geeks of the science world. (laughs) But I thought, no, I'll do it. And, uh, yeah, I was really, really pleased I chose it. And then I, I picked up zoology as well. So, yeah, I think it led me into this fascinating world of the natural sciences and it was, yeah, the best thing I could have done. I guess the end game was to work in some sort of area in the natural sciences, there weren't many jobs in those days, so I did um, sort of have the second, second uh, pursuit of being a teacher. So, so I I did um, my uh, a teacher's diploma as well.
0: That's amazing because I think so often when we're, especially you know when we're younger, everyone says, what do you want to be? And, and my family's always told me, go in the field that you like and you'll find something, but something that you're interested in. But it is hard to know what does what is that going to translate to? What's the end game? Yes. <laughs> Terrifying, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And they always seem to ask you very early on, what are you, what are you going to do? And you're thinking, oh my God, I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So did you ever think that it would end up being in wine? No, I think that was just a
1: fortuitous shift. In as you say, at the end of the, my degree, um, Steve was actually studying botany as well, and we we linked up. <laughs> and uh, then the, the opportunity started opening up, and he said, Well, come over to Geisenheim with me, come over to Germany, and we'll we'll study. Um, why making a viticulture together, and that's when it all worked out. <laughs> mm,
0: great minds think alike. What did you first think when you met Stephen? Um, oh, the cutest nose ever! <laughs> <laughs> I can see that he does have a very cute nose. <laughs> and I suppose you know having something in common and being passionate about what you were both studying just must have been such a lovely godsend, you know, you found somebody that you really have a lot in common with.
1: Yeah, so we were, you know, we did a lot of uh, our field work together
0: after that. So, yeah, it was good fun and, uh, yeah, it was great. So tell me about Germany. What was what was the experience like headed over there and studying?
1: Oh, it was amazing. I mean, if you, you could think of um, sleepless nights for – <laughs> two years <laughs> it was a, an amazing uh, trip because we studied in geisenheim at the institute so we were guest listeners and so that gave us the rights to study but not have to do the exams <laughs> and uh, so uh, anything from because uh, mine was more plant physiology and um and that sort of thing, but we did wine tasting. The, the wine tastings were very sophisticated because you you had to uh, learn to recognise all the different levels of acid, acid sugar balance, pH, all these things. You could actually train your taste buds to um, sense, and uh, yeah, it was quite fascinating how accurate you could actually become. So that was. That was really fascinating for me to see how how they trained our palates.
0: Wow. I bet a love of Riesling was born. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) There there wasn't much else, actually. It was
1: really dominant Riesling. There's a little bit of Spätburgunder or Pinot Noir around, but it was a different style. And and there were all these um, fantastic flower bombs, you know, like um, uh, I guess – they're really aromatic wines. <laughs> so that was a, a sensation at the time, And um, but they're, they're a little bit um, overblown. <laughs> they're really muscety, yeah.
0: Oh, yes, of course. I know what you mean, a bit of a pop puree thing going on. Um, tell me a little bit about, I mean, first of all, how did you go with the, the language over there?
1: Well, I had studied French at school, so German was a little bit foreign. And uh, I did a um, an adult learning class here in Adelaide to start off with and had very little German. <laughs> so once I got there, um, Steve and I did a, a bridging course in languages. So uh, we actually lived in Freiburg for six months um, down the Schwarzwald or the Black Forest. And that really helped us because we're studying every day, that helped us bring out um, at least our, our conversational German up to university standard. So, that really helped having that intensive course. And we met so many beautiful people there. It was just amazing. <laughs> and of course, the only language we couldn't converse in is German. So, it was German the whole time.
0: Yeah, that conversation, I mean, I'm terrible at other languages, but yeah, having that um ability to to have a casual conversation really, from what I've heard, really starts to cement you know that that language skill and ingrain it into your your body almost. Yes, yes, If you start dreaming um, in particular, you start dreaming in German, which
1: I, I think that's the switch <laughs> when you start to get that um, that flow <laughs> in another language is was great. It was just sensational to do that.
0: Amazing. Now, you also did some volunteer work when you were there. Tell me a little bit about um, your work at the Botanic Institute and also your your um, academic, Professor Becker. Oh, yes. Well, Professor Helmut Becker was the world's
1: most beautiful person. I think he, he just had a heart of gold. He would welcome people into the Institute, show them his wines, his new crosses. He was very excited about the whole um, the whole works that Germany was giving to the world. I think he was the one who was the great ambassador for new varieties and all, all that sort of thing, new rootstocks. He, he really established that whole area across the world, I think. Um, and it was just lovely to work alongside him. Um, I was actually... Um, in the in the the um, research institute with him, so I worked as a, um, a just a, a vineyard hand, so that was always a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, there are many funny stories, but um, and then the other little job I did on the side was actually um, looking at uh, growth hormones in rootstocks. So there there was. Um, a technique of isolating the IBA out of uh, rootstocks and it sort of classified them as easy propagators and poor propagators. So I was able to um, get that technique refined and yeah, it was very interesting work because I ended up uh, working <laughs> alongside um, a Korean, I think he was, looking at uh, ginseng. So ginseng, ginseng needs to be, Stored before it actually can uh, root properly, and so it it had the same dormancy issues as rootstocks. So uh, yeah, we we uh, worked on ginseng for a little bit. <laughs> How
0: fascinating! I mean, my mind just reels because I I I find this um, totally enthralling, and I want to ask you a million questions. But um, I'll try I'll try to try to maintain myself. Tell me um a little bit about just. Professor Becker in terms of a person what what kind of a human was he like
1: well he was a very um, a very happy um, very joyful person and he'd walk in and it was always you know a very respectful guten morgen <laughs> you know? and and then he'd pick on somebody and tell them a funny story and and you know and it, it was just this wonderful um uh, level of happiness in, in that he had around him. And uh, he always enjoyed entertaining people and he <laughs> used to joke about getting the 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 red sect out for the Russians <laughs> and take them up. And there was a hill behind Geisenheim called Rotenberg. So he said, I will take the Russians up to the Rotenberg and have the red sacked. <laughs> Roten So he, he he was like that. He was a very, um, a, a very um, sort of well-spoken um, guy, but so friendly, so friendly. And he actually... Yeah, he was. And he uh, he loved Australians. <laughs> he loved to learn how to swear and all that sort of thing.
0: But it didn't get much further than bloody, so… <laughs> 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 oh, what an amazing individual, but also lovely to hear about. We, you can read all about all the amazing work he does, but you wonder, was this a quiet, serious type, or were they, you know, like you said, larger than life and had a sense of humour, or were they, you know, so it's it's so nice to hear and, and sounds like an amazing time learning from him. Let's fast forward a little bit to 1981 when you purchased the apple orchard in lenswood tell me a little bit how that came about and what was the p- place like at that time
1: well when i came home from germany there was a job going at roseworthy and one of the big projects there was um, site selection and i had a look at all the the data and thought well, that that looks really interesting you know to think, think we do have cool climates in australia and we do um, and one's really on our doorstep. So I looked at um, Lenswood and th- thought about, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to grow Riesling in a cooler climate? And that's that was my thinking. But Steve was really on the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay um, thought line. And so we looked at this Apple Watch, and it, it looked a little bit like Germany steep <laughs> slopes, really lush green. Um, sword all through summer, so it looked looked like we could do it. When I mean, we, we thought, well, we've had the experience in Germany. Let's go for it. So well, we bought the land, and lo and behold, we had neighbours. We had Tim Knapstein one side, and Jeff. Um, oh, sorry, forgotten his name. Jeff Weaver, Jeff Weaver. The other side. Yeah, and we all sort of. Landed in this one spot at the same time, <laughs> and and uh, so then I ran the apple orchard for a couple of years just to just to cover or you know, understand the, the the ground. So what the, the actual um, soil was like and where the, you know where where you could plant different varieties. So I was really having a good look at that while growing the apples which um, I now grow my own because I don't think I'd ever love to grow apples commercially. It would be um, a nightmare as a career. Um, And then we gradually transformed to grapes. So we planted uh, a hectare of Riesling and a hectare of Chardonnay. In those days when Chardonnay was really hard to get, so uh, we managed to, to start opening up the the um orchard to vineyard so that was great but then we got hit by a
0: bushfire ah well that's that's i knew that that would be uh something that would come up at some point it's inevitable i suppose and what was that in the early time of planting the vineyard yes so that was in
1: 83 um it actually um it removed all the apple pear and cherry trees that we had on the property so they all got burnt and uh, it was more or less a, a clear fell. Um, But, yeah, it was a bit hard because you lose a, a source of income that you wanted to have while you were developing the vineyard and all the irrigation went. So, But that, the irrigation was very poorly set up, so that wasn't such a loss. <laughs> mm.
0: I bet for someone like you anyway, though, you know, all life in a plant life is, is beautiful. So I'm sure that you would have liked to keep a couple of those apples or cherry trees anyway, even if you were moving on to to, to planting vines. Yeah, the cherry um, slope was the steepest one and that was what we
1: were, we were going to keep, the cherries, and plant all the grapes around it. But when the cherries went, it, it became a Pinot Noir slope. <laughs>
0: Stephen was happy about that then. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> um, in yeah. 1986, you began a project of mass selection. Can you talk me through a little bit of that and, and for some of the listeners too, just explaining kind of what that kind of mass selection is all about?
1: yeah it's uh, something i i learned to do in germany so the um, mass selection starts off with looking through the the vineyard over a three-year period uh, looking for the best performers so you, you look at um even bud burst you look at um, development of flower heads so the germans always favored three flower heads per per shoot which is how they they really achieved their high production um, so I, I did add that in <laughs> knowing we could always go back um and then for azone, even for azone, lack of virus is one another important one and then the maturity data so we looked at acid pH and sugar that whole balance through the maturity Um and from there, um, I guess we we sort of put all that data together and selected out the best performers. So then we planted those best performers. We about, I think it was about 170 individual vines. We planted uh, five vines of each in another nursery. So then we could look at the the actual performance without any um, differences in vigour or age. So we looked at the young vine performing. And that took about thirty years before we got a really consistent um, flow of data. so we we could really then hone in on those vines that um, kept their kept their identity, I suppose. Um, and from that we then had twenty one selections that we're going to use. Um, to replant in the vineyard because Mount Edelston and Hill of Grace are over 100 years old. So uh, we're losing vines from, say, utipa, which is a, a trunk disease, a fungal trunk disease, and it slowly kills the vine off. So instead of just planting anything or a new stock, a new genetic stock in the vineyard, we thought we'd go back and use our selected material off the old vines. And we're just starting to do that now. <laughs> so it's taken us years to actually get to a, um, a, a source block that we can use the cuttings from. But we've, we're now there and uh, we're going to be doing that next year.
0: Well, oh, that's extremely exciting. And farming is the long game. So, and um, you know that more than anybody, Can I ask a little bit about the landscape of farming in the kind of 1980s and what you were working with and the kind of move to kind of that regenerational organics? When did that come into play and and what were you working with?
1: Um, Well, I guess it's interesting that Hill of Grace was run organically um, by Steve's uncle for years and and then – in the '60s, I guess it was the post-war period when new insecticides and fungicides came in, and there was an oversupply of fertilisers and heavy tractors, and it was all the the modern the modern way. And we now look back and think, well, oh, that wasn't so so good. We we should have um, sort of not cultivated. We should have perhaps not used so many insecticides. And uh, I guess Uncle Lou was very, very aware of that, having grown up through that period. And uh, so he he didn't use any of that material. He just used organic um, um, fungicides, basically, um, copper and sulfur. And so the, the vineyards always being um, organic, organically cared for and uh, Mount Edelston perhaps not so much but now it is (laughs) but it was it's an interesting thing that you know back in the um, in the I guess the turn of the century when there weren't these uh, new conventional sprays and heavy tractors around um, it was much more organic and yeah they. They survived, generally, <laughs> I think. They probably didn't have the um, access to such heavy, uh, fast equipment as the tractors these days. But, uh, yeah, it would have been hard work, though. Well <laughs>
0: yeah. Yes, yes, definitely, and I mean, I suppose you know the world is subject to uh, whether it be industry developments or you know the modern era, and and in those sixties, that like you said, at that time they were coming up with you know you butte amazing fungicides that you've got to have, and 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 unfortunately, you know, you know, we all kind of. Took on this. This might be the the future, and then we've we've learnt and gone backwards. But can you maybe give an example of how kind of organic farming or regenerative farming actually impacts or or changes the flavour of wine? Because I think that that is something that we don't often discuss, or or we don't really a lot of the time. It's it's not an example is not really made. Mm. Well, I think the the best example that I
1: can think of
0: is. Um,
1: the compost and straw mulch that we apply. So these vineyards are dry grown most, and they were always dry grown in the past. So when we came to the 90s, there was a, um, a, a bit of a um, drought year, wet year, drought year. So in those warmer years, we actually developed a compost a straw mulch cover under vine and this is very much part of organics, or very much part of biodynamics, actually, to add compost to the to your soil. And what we saw was this evening out of the ripening. So we weren't getting, um, the vines weren't getting blasted by heat. They had an even ground temperature around the roots, and we saw less berry stress, less, less leaf fall. So there was a more even ripening and I think you can see that in the wines. There's better balance, there's better um, uh, sugar-acid balance and there's also better tannin development and uh, obviously um, the berries are uh, whole, so they're not shriveling. So I think that, that really shows through in the wines. That very fact of, of looking after this, the soil, the root zone, um with um the biodynamic compost very important <laughs> and i think every, every every gardener now knows about
0: mycorrhizal fungi and
1: <laughs> and feeding feeding the soil not not the roots yeah
0: i want to talk briefly a little bit about hill of grace stepping into the four hectare vineyard is almost an out-of-body experience for anyone that has done it um but I want to ask you, what kind of journey have you been on with those vines? You know, 160 year old vines now. What do they mean to you?
1: Oh, well, I think you look at them and, and you think, well, where did they begin? Because you can see that they've been on a, a, a lower trellis, they've um, had their, their crown or the their, their head of the vines been readjusted by so many pruners. Um, but uh, with the most fascinating thing was we we've doing this Italian um, soft pruning or the and search method of pruning and the guys came out and did a lot of training with us um, and they said, oh, can we go and see the Hill of Grace vineyards? And, uh, and then they say, it's, it's there. That's what they've been doing. All the old pruners have been doing this technique. Um, and it's basically looking after the sap flow um, from the underneath of the of the arms, and you can see the the growing points and how how clean that wo- that wood was. and they they' terribly excited about it. and I, I could see that the old pruners again knew what they were doing, and we lost that somewhere. Somewhere in, in the 50s when we're all saying, oh, pruning doesn't need so much special treatment. You just go in and you bang, 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 and then machine pruning came in. I think that was the, the worst thing we could have ever done. But, um, yeah, so it was interesting to see that, that the old method, which is now being reused, is part of that, that, um, that reason why those vines live so long. And, uh, yeah, it's a, so yeah, it's a, a lovely vineyard though because of that history and I guess it, it, you also find an occasional odd vine that's not Shiraz and you think, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> where, where did that come from, you know? And uh, so some of, some of the really old table grapes turn up. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting. <laughs>
0: well, they're hearty little
1: buggers, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, oh Shiraz is. I think the back in when when they started looking at what grape variety would suit the Australian conditions, you know the Busby selections and all that sort of thing, they've really favoured Shiraz because of its um, mid ripening, beautiful flavours, beautiful tannins, and it it's fascinating that they didn't select Cabernet. You know why 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 did they select Shiraz and not Cabernet Sauvignon? that, um, yeah, because cabernet's much later, so yeah, it was. It's sort of our identity now, isn't it? Sure is.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. It, yes, I suppose. But I always. It's so fascinating because you have so many beautiful sites. Um, I think about. You know my relationship with your rieslings over the years, and and at the part they've played on on my family table. So um, I think about Johann's garden and Grenache, the story that you have there. So I, I think you know it is such a special wine because of its name and it, that beautiful site. But uh, I, I think it's like you know I'm a kid in a candy store when I look at your offerings because. There's so many special places. Um, but it's interesting because I think, you know, a lot of people haven't had access to, to see vines that old and just the difference of looking at young vines and old vines and and you get to do that immersive experience. Do you have to be careful of how many people you're walking through the vineyard in terms of doing that that experience?
1: Yes, we we. Um- only take small groups, I guess, and um, are, uh, biosecurity is front and foremost for all those visitors. So they, they actually don't go right up to the vines. I think that's important that we, we keep those vines isolated from any vector of phylloxera and that's our biggest concern, I guess, um, is that the people, traffic, um, vehicles, um, all that sort of thing, they they can convey uh, phylloxera. Phylloxera is a little bug that's now in Victoria um, and it grows on the roots and causes the vine to die gradually. But they, the little buggers can last for two weeks without um, soil, being in the soil. So, being an insect, I guess it's they've just um, been um, they just able to survive without uh, the conditions they usually live in uh, for the two-week period. So, I think if you've got mud on your boots, it's the best way to convey it. <laughs> mud on the tyres of a vehicle, cuffs cuffs on your trousers, even. So, it's all a risk um, that we don't want to. Into the vineyard.
0: No, I mean, and doing the, the the washes and and all those things, you have to be careful about. But I mean, you know, not having phylloxera in many parts of Australia is is miraculous, and it's uh, yeah, I can see why it's such a huge concern and why you need to be absolutely rigorous in 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 your your precautions. Yes, and I think that's yeah, as you say, it is Australia wide this. Um,
1: uh, prevention protocols certainly for all vineyards, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's. I think it's it's sort of a an Australian. It shows up the tenacity of the Australians in a way <laughs> to prevent that spread. I because you in New Zealand it wasn't quite the same. They, I guess there it was more about machine harvesters spreading all the the um, in. The, the bugs through their their vineyards but you know I think we've been able to prevent it coming in is amazing
0: <laughs> well we you know being you know a continent we really do have to um We have to be really careful and it's you know even at the moment with the diseases going around and, and people just saying you know what what the impact could have for us is is it's really scary but another scary factor is uh climate change which obviously is something that you you know must take up a lot of your time and consideration for farming how do you manage the large seasonal fluctuations that we're seeing i can you give me more of an example of, of maybe the like you know the the latest Leninian years? I know obviously we're trending towards warmer, but we're also having these these cool issues in these last few years. How how do you com- combat that?
1: Mm, well, I guess um, yeah, it is difficult because you sit down and work out your spray program well in advance, um, and I guess uh, with organics we have got. A number of of tools we can, and and this year we we knew we we're going going into a wet year because of a, a latest Easter and the the late bud burst, so um, I guess we sat down and we worked out that if we use organic um, uh, organic fungicides, we need to be preventative, so we need to put more sprays in, and we also um have um another f- fungicide called ecocarb it's like like baking soda which is an eradicant so we have plenty of tools it's just putting it on at the right time <laughs> and then the other tool we've got is um canopy management so this is something we did r- right through so from shoot thinning to and it, with all that rain during November, we got a lot of lateral growth. So that meant the shoots are really thickening up and we had to actually thin out the laterals to make open up the canopy so we could get in contact with the the, um, the bunches, the developing bunches. So there was a, a lot of handwork and, and a lot of, um, yeah, just thinning out the canopy and then towards after Foraison then you have to go through and thin out bunches that are touching because botrytis and is your n- next enemy <laughs> and uh, and depending on how much rain you get through vintage. And it came. <laughs> uh, but,
0: um, yeah, we survived I think very well. It, 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 it never fails to surprise me just how much work um you know, you actually do. And and I think it's – for a lot of people, you know, they think of Henschke as this incredible icon of of amazing, prestigious wine, but I think sometimes they forget that you're a medium-sized winery. Can you explain a little bit about what vintage looks like, you know, the team that you're working with? Are you getting, you know, people from overseas coming and doing some, um, you know – Yes. So what we use –
1: what we usually do is, um, well, in advance. We and and I guess it there's um, uh, there even um, there are old folk songs in Germany that talk about the travelling apprentices. And they 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 work for seven years travelling around, and it's exactly like that in winemaking. You have uh, people all over the world, winemakers, trained winemakers. Who are looking for that experience in another, another area, another region, and so this year we had three French uh, winemakers join us. So that was and, and two young lads who had just finished their um, their um, training at at Wait. So yeah, you you bolster up your team with some wonderful. Professionals. I mean, they they have to be called professionals because they've done the study, they work in a winery, and they just bring so much into your vintage. It's phenomenal. So they bring new techniques, and they're they're the kind of people who just allow you to to work through a huge workload at vintage time. And um, yeah, and we had the most successful vintage this year. It was just wonderful with the people we had yeah and they also helped out because they arrived early they helped out in the vineyard too (laughs) so they were they were very important players in thinning out all the um the bunches getting ready for vintage as well
0: uh, that must have been amazing for them to, to to get in and and have that experience. Let alone all the all the stuff that happens in the winery as well. I imagine the wait list to do a vintage at Henchke must be decades long. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: I I guess yeah, it depends. Yeah, uh, it it's a very it is a selection process. Um, but yeah, it, it's sight unseen a bit. <laughs> But we've been we've been very lucky. We've had the most beautiful people, honestly.
0: Oh, that's lovely to hear. Because I mean, they do add a lot to the dynamic, don't they? Of, of just what that experience is like, and and because they're long days and a lot of work.
1: Yes, and they're fun people. They're always, you know, there's a different story. There's a different uh, different dynamic. <laughs> uh, just it was abs- you know it. Vintage is, a, is kind of a fun time. Everybody just has to work hard, play hard. It's, a, yeah, it's a – and a, I think everywhere in the world it's the same. It's sort of the celebration of getting something in that's, that tastes beautiful. And, uh, yeah, you're tasting every day and you think, oh, that looks good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet. Is there a part um- – I mean, I'm sure the end of vintage is always a celebration, as you said, and you know you've you've made it through. But is there a part throughout the year that you really look forward to in in your journey of of work?
1: Um, oh, I think flowering has to be the most exciting time. Um, well, it can be devastating as well, <laughs> but it's it's really. I don't know, the vineyards have this beautiful um, green, iridescent green across the the horizon and then you can see all the flower heads forming and you think, oh, this is going to be good year. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think flowering is my exciting time um, mainly because the look of the vineyards looking so, you know, healthy and Full of life
0: (laughs) oh I love that that's the true botanist in you (laughs) in terms of um your you know your work with your husband do you really segregate you know your your roles is there much crossover or are you quite happy sticking in your own lanes and doing what you do
1: I guess we make decisions together so you know um a lot of the day-to-day work um is very much me either on my computer (laughs) working out things or in the vineyard, and Steve's in the winery. But we tend to come together about, you know, what are we going to plant? What what crop levels are we going to set in that block? And then, especially at vintage time, we're always uh, tasting together so that's when you tend to say, or uh, you know should we try um um a bit more of a bit more nebbiolo another clone of nebbiolo, or should we um perhaps look at a, a lower yield on this block or you know things we're I mean, making decisions as we go through the tastings often, and that's where we come together. <laughs>
0: Well, that's lovely to hear, and I think that surely in any successful relationship, let alone operation, um, yeah, that thought and consideration to come together and make decisions is—it's got to be some part of what you do. And it's nice to hear that you do. I just want to quick, quickly touch on your the sixth generation of Henschke. What Johan, Justine, and, and Andreas tell me how do you, how did you how did you feel when they decided they wanted to to continue on the family legacy and was that an option for them <laughs> or, do, or was it written in stone? Oh, yes. Well, I guess it's always
1: been an option um, because they were all, well, you yo, know, when he went to uni and studied science, we thought, oh we've lost him. But then um, that one night when we were at the New York Wine Experience, he rang up and said, Mum and Dad, I think I'm going to change over to wine science. <laughs> We opened up a bottle of champagne and celebrated. We thought, this is it. Our kids are starting to show interest. And then, of course, Joss was, uh, she was just about to go and work in Sydney because Sydney was her love. Um, And um, we said, well, uh, we've got an opportunity here, (laughs) Jess. And uh, she came back and did didn't sat down, did an interview with all the staff, and it, she was just gold. We couldn't go past her. She was the top candidate. So she came back into the business, and now Andreas is working with us a few days a week as a production manager or site manager. So um, we've got all of his engineering expertise and project planning coming in. Uh, it's just amazing how they fitted in so well. Um so yeah it's been exciting very exciting and you don't feel alone you feel oh my goodness we we're, we're here as a family this is so good very good so mm.
0: it's got to be one of the great successes of life i think to to be able to have a family that can work together but also you know that that continues on this amazing legacy that that you have it really is unlike anywhere else in the world and and so incredibly special and it's lovely to see them all flourishing in in their roles and, and, you know, they're all so different, your children.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, they are. We're lucky that way, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely lucky because you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: you never know what the genetics are going to bring you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so true. I'd love to know if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Oh, um well, I think
1: – um Definitely uh, champagne sparkling wine, number one. <laughs> and then um, after that, a good red. It doesn't matter what variety. Uh, it just has to be a good red. And um, then uh, Botrytis. Oh, then we tasted the most beautiful Botrytis wines in Germany. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting <laughs> to see how how the flavors develop.
0: Oh, of course, because it's a fungus. Yeah, and do you know that's the first time anyone said that actually on the podcast? But it makes sense because if you look at some of those Chalk and Beer and Lazy wines, they're just sublime, aren't they? And they just live forever as well.
1: Yes, they do, and it's it's because of a fungus. You think this is ridiculous? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, we, need, we need a bit of everything Do we need the, the funky and we need the pristine, we need a bit of everything in life and so that, that's, that's a good example of something that's a bit grotty but can be wonderful <laughs> <laughs> yes and we had one of those ferments this year actually
1: we've got it going still at the moment um, we've got a semi-ompetritis that's uh, slowly ticking over at the moment
0: Mm, yes, I've ha- I've poured that at Keith and and it's a well not that particular one obviously but um, it's a beautiful wine and you've got so many things going on. In fact, you were talking about Tempranillo that you were about t- to drink today, perhaps.
1: Yes, yes. So um, I guess because of that experience in Germany, the uh, different varieties that are around the place uh, really fascinate me. So we've had an opportunity to look at. Uh, different varieties at Eden Valley. So we've got this lovely slope of Nebbiolo, Graziano, uh, Tempranillo and Barbera. And uh, it just, each variety gives us this amazing picture into a more savoury style. And I think that's what I was looking for with, with Steve. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just looking at a more savoury style um, that could we could produce and it's working really well so tempranillo is one of those and of course now that steve's uh, johan's married to angela she's spanish we have this amazing connection with spain (laughs) Um, and and her family's involved in winemaking so so we get to see the the pure expression of tempranillo and they're they're Properties actually biodynamic as well. It's amazing to watch these people work on on biodynamics in a, in a wetter colder climate.
0: Yeah, yeah, in particular because a little bit more challenging and a lot more detailed. But I think it's so exciting. I mean you obviously work with Barossa, Eden, the hills. you've got such wonderful, scope and new varieties coming in which I think are really exciting and, and everything that you do you do with such consideration so we know that you know if you're looking at Tempranillo then there's some very exciting things in the mix.
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah.
0: Prue, your work, your approach, your philosophies Are why I'm so enamoured with the world of wine Thank you for your precious time today And thank you for all that you do to better the land and our country It's just such an honour to have you spend a little bit of your time with me today
1: Oh thank you, it's great to talk
0: <laughs> This is Over a Glass I'm Shante Whale